After a week off, the Ultimate Fighting Championship is back in business this weekend, having set up shop for at least the next three months in its flagship facility, the UFC Apex in Las Vegas. The string of events, which includes cards every weekend until April, kicks off on Saturday with UFC Fight Night 184, or UFC Vegas 18 if you prefer, and a heavyweight main event featuring two of the more decorated contenders in the history of the division in former Dream, Strike Force, and K1 Grand Prix champion Alistair Overeem, and former Bellator and M1 heavyweight champion Alexander Volkov. Neither man has yet held UFC gold, and you could argue that it's a long shot that either ever will, but on Saturday, one of them will get one step closer to earning a chance to try. Before we get to the headliner, however, we will be treated to a fight night card consisting of 12 other fighters that is one of the richest of its kind in recent memory. Good evening and welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC Fight Night 184, Overeem vs. Volkov. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com, and with me is Keith Schillen, executive producer of the Loudmouth MMA Network, as well as a writer for SureDog.com and a host and creator of numerous shows for SureDog Radio, including the Schillen and Duffy Show. Keith, how are you this evening? Man, I'm great, man. I'm excited for this card. Okay, without looking, just guess off the top of your head, five fight main card, so 10 total fighters. How many of those 10 fighters are currently in the SureDog uh, top 10 of their respective divisions? Okay, without, I don't have the order memorized. So obviously Overeem and Volkov, uh, Frankie Edgar, Corey Sanhagen. The next fight down is uh, Alessandra Pantoja versus Manel Cop. Both of them. So this six at least. So it's top both fighters in the top three build fights. Uh, next one down is Cody Stamen versus Askar Askar. No, I don't think either one is in. And the main card opener is Diego Fajera versus Benil Dariush. Oh, um, I think at least one of them is in. So yeah, maybe both. I don't know. That's uh, so I'll go seven. Excellent. Let me check your math uh, real quick, or your your counting. <laughs> since okay, Overeem, Volkov, Sandhagen, Edgar, Pantoja. Uh, so five are in the top ten. Uh, Fajera and Darius are both in the top fifteen, and Cop is in uh, the top fifteen of a different division than the one he'll actually be competing in. So depending on how you count, anywhere between five and eight. I mean, yeah. we we talk sometimes ahead of UFC cards, especially the fight night cards, about how there isn't a ton of divisional relevance. This is not one of those cards. I mean, I'm trying to remember the last time we had a, a fight night card that was this stacked with ranked fighters. And for the most part, ranked fighters who have been winning their fights, fighters with momentum. It's not like a couple of guys falling out of the rankings, you know, trying to grab the last rung of the ladder before they're, they're booted ahead of this, this card. I mean, on paper, uh, what, what letter grade would you give this just for what it's offering us? Yeah. So first thing is we got to call it for a fight night. So that's, yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of category you got to put it in. So I'm not comparing this to every UFC card. But compared to for Fight Night, this is as good as it gets. Uh, 
we had some fights fall off. I'm a little disappointed. Like Alex De Silva was a guy that I'm pretty high on. I was excited to see him, especially in a tough matchup against Devontae Smith. But everything you want, you want name value. You got name value. You got Frankie Edgar in the co-main event. You got Alistair Overeem in the main event. You got you know two absolute legends of the sport headlining, you know, in the top two fights. If you want, as you mentioned, ranked fighters, you just said there's anywhere between five to eight ranked fighters, and there's a couple guys on the prelims that could be ranked in the you know somewhat near future. If do you want uh, prospects? There's prospects. There's guys I like, like uh, Timur Valiev is a guy that a lot of people are high on. Devontae Smith was a guy that coming off the uh, the Dana White Contender Series, a lot of people ha- were high on. Oday Osborne was another guy. So uh, Asker Asker is a guy that while he's young, he's been a guy that's been on people's radar for a long time. So there's some really really good fighters, uh, and then. I think this is like some important fights too. Like Benil Dariush versus Diego Carlos Ferreira. That's just an important fight because you're talking about probably the best division in MMA, the best division in UFC, and you know how how long of a run you have to be on against top guys to even crack the top ten, the top fifteen. And both these guys are on those kind of runs, but the loser you're falling so far back with one simple loss. So they're just important fights. Uh, it's just fantastic. I'm excited for this card. Me too. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dig into this one. The UFC Vegas 18 card kicks off with what we are told is a featherweight matchup between Ode Osborne and Jerome Rivera. I say we are told because Osborne is typically a bantamweight, and while Rivera fought most recently a bantamweight, he is typically a flyweight, but nonetheless, uh, the UFC has it listed as a 145-pound matchup, and so we will treat it as such. Osborne, the 29-year-old from Wisconsin, is 8-3 and three with one no contest in his professional mixed martial arts career. He is 0-1 in the UFC, having made his promotional debut all the way back uh, in January of 2020, losing to Brian Kelleher by first-round guillotine choke. He'll be taking on someone in Rivera who has fought much more recently than that, namely about two weeks ago, where he fought at UFC on ESPN 20 and took a loss to the debuting Francisco Figueredo. That makes Rivera 0-2 in the UFC since joining from the Contender Series himself and 10-4 overall in his mixed martial arts career. Rivera is the slight underdog. He's plus 170, where you can get Osborne around minus 190 as the favorite. How do you see this one playing out, Keith? Well, uh, this is an interesting matchup because one guy I'm pretty high on, but he's he's made some IQ, fight IQ, bad decisions in his career, while uh, the other guy, well, I'm kind of giving away my pick, but... Rivera, on the other hand, is a guy that you just got to give him credit. As you mentioned, this is a guy that could be moving up two weight classes on like a two and a half week turnaround. Uh, I mean, good for him. I'll, I'll start with Osborne. Uh, this guy is, does not lack confidence. He calls himself the Picasso of MMA. Uh, <laughs> I, I, as I mentioned, I like him. I don't know if I would call him Picasso, but uh, he's a good striker, southpaw, fast hands, Accurate hands. We saw that in when he was styling on the feet on Kelleher. He was doing very well. He's aggressive, but also controlled with it. 
where he's going to come out, but he's going to come out guns blazing, but then keep pausing, make sure he's not overthrowing. He'll attack with combinations. He loves spinning attacks. Uh, tons of athleticism. Throws like a flying knee out of nowhere. He's, he's got a great check hook that he uses to keep his range. Good head movement. Though sometimes he'll pull his head straight back instead of bouncing off the center line, which will be a big issue when he goes against like the elite strikers in the division. Hard leg kicks, but he does plant his legs, so he's open to counter leg kicks. But similar stance than Conor McGregor has is it's been dissected recently over the last couple of weeks. He is a three-time Wisconsin State finalist in wrestling and also wrestled in NCAA's. Though you hardly know that because he hardly ever uses his wrestling when he when he has been. Well, when the fight is on the ground, it's usually his opponent taking him down. Like Brian Kelleher took Tim down, and Brian Keller isn't as nearly decorated a wrestler as Osborne is. If he does go for a takedown, it's good. He's got good ground and pound. He is a submission there. He has four submission subs. Uh, though one thing when I was watching the contender series that in my preview that I hate is sometimes when he's on top, he he's he just likes exciting the crowd. He'll drop down on an ankle, which hardly ever work. Uh, move over to Jerome Rivera. So I was looking at my past notes, and the first thing that I saw in my past notes is tall for the weight class. But that was talking about flyweight, not featherweight. Uh, he's 5'10", so he's you know still fairly tall. He's a southpaw. He's an okay boxer. Uh, nothing, nothing spectacular there. He should be able to use range because he has it. But he d- hasn't really learned it. He kind of has a Stefan Struve-type style to him where he, he almost wants to fight in in the pocket and kind of use that tall man to mean style. Uh, something similar to what I was going to say about Macy Chasson. She kind of has a similar style. He also like kind of dives in, leads a little bit, uh, leads with his chin a little bit, makes him very hittable. Uh, he likes kicks, teep kicks down the middle. He's got a very good plum clinch, knees in the plum. Uh, as I said last time we were breaking on just two weeks ago, his his best thing is the clinch where he can frame. Like he does framing really good where he kind of creates the space because of his long legs that he can land knee. Uh, defensively, he is terrible in the wrestling department. Uh, he will not only will he get taken down, but he'll give up his back to get up. Uh, he will sneak in an offensive takedown himself. And his top control isn't bad as he will continue to look to advance to position. And he's got those long arms and legs, which helped him get submissions. He's got seven submission uh, wins on his career. And also in his last fight, while uh, Francisco Figueredo kind of easily won the fight, uh, Rivera pressed it pretty late where he showed off a good gas tank. So you got to like that. As far as who I think is going to win, moving up two weight classes is tough. Luckily, he's going against a guy who's also moving up one weight class. But Osborne is too fast. He's too accurate. He also should have the wrestling advantage. So I think Rivera's going to get beat up the second time this month. Osborne, I picked him to pick Kelleher, and I was pretty confident, and he, he kind of made a blunder there. But I don't think he does it twice ago. So give me Osborne. I'll say Rivera's so tough that I say he makes a decision. So give me Osborne by decision. I agree with uh, a lot of what you're putting down here. It, it is funny that you said tall for the weight class at flyweight because he's still going to be the taller guy when they get in the cage together against Osborne. 
probably going to have a longer reach as well. But I think the difference in physical strength and power is going to be a stark one. I also think if this is really happening at featherweight, that's going to favor Osborne even more because, okay, he's already been training for a fight this weekend. Oh, and now you're going to tell him he doesn't have to cut that extra 10 pounds of water at the end of the week. And he's fighting a guy that, yes, obviously he's in shape. He just barely had a fight two weeks ago, but he's past, he's past his peak. He's past the peak he was training for. So even if this goes late, I, I don't think that necessarily hurts Osborne. Osborne is, he's prone to lapses in fight IQ, as you said. It's interesting, the contrast between his contender series win and then his loss to Kelleher. Because in both, I thought he was getting the better of the stand-up. The difference is in what happened once the fight hit the ground. He may make some mistakes against Rivera, but I don't think Rivera has any weapons that are going to be able to make him pay for it in the same way that Kelleher did. I, I have the I have the feeling this is going to be a really good looking performance for Osborne. I like him to beat Rivera up on the feet. I like him either to uh, force Rivera to like look for the takedown, even though he's not much of an offensive grappler, but maybe just to look to get it to the ground by any means necessary, and for Osborne to actually get a finish. Give me Osborne by submission in the second round. I wouldn't be surprised if he pounded him out, but I would be, I would be more likely in my opinion that we see him either grab a guillotine or take the back and get a rear naked choke, but give me uh, Osborne by finish in the second round. We move on in the prelims to a fight that I can say with greater confidence is taking place at featherweight as Yusef Zalal welcomes Sung Woo Choi back to the UFC after taking all of 2020 off. Salal, the 24-year-old Moroccan by way of Englewood, Colorado, is 10-3 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 3-1 in the UFC and was well on his way to being one of the breakout fighters of the year. Well, he still is one of the breakout fighters of the year, but went from the short list to the slightly longer list as he won his first three fights in the octagon in 2020 before running into Ilya Tapuria at UFC Fight Night Marais versus Sandhagen back in October. He'll be taking on Choi. Choi, the 28-year-old South Korean, is 8-3 and three as a mixed martial artist. He is 1-2 and two in the UFC. He debuted in 2019, losing to Movsar Ivloev and Gavin Tucker before winning a unanimous decision over Suman Mokhtarian uh, on his home turf in uh, Seoul, South Korea, back in December 2019. Currently, Zalal is a pretty healthy favorite, uh, sitting out there around minus 230, where you can get Choi around plus 200. When I look at this fight, and at least at the UFC level, the, the fights that they've won and lost, these are both guys who have lost when they've gotten bullied by bigger, stronger, better wrestlers and grapplers. That's, I, I mean, the Yusef Zalal Express was running full steam ahead until he ran into Tapuria. And we've now learned that, well, Tapuria looks very much like a future title contender, but in the moment, it was stark for me to see how badly Zalal kind of got bullied. Tapuria is just so strong and uh, such a, a, you know, just a very good takedown artist and then has just such crushing uh, top control. I thought it was a bit of a bit of a moral victory for Zalal not to get tapped out in that one even. Uh, same thing for Choi, just in reverse. 
his first two UFC fights against Movsar Evloev and Gavin Tucker, that's a tough ask for a really tall, skinny guy who wants to strike. Uh, it's a tough ask in a way we really didn't even realize in 2019. I, I don't think we realized just how good Movsar Evloev was going to be. When he ran into Mokhtarian, someone uh, more more his own speed as a physical specimen, he looked really good. And I think that's the dynamic for both these guys. Uh, both these guys would like to have a slick kickboxing match and go for that 50K. The question will be, uh, when one guy starts getting the worst of it, how does he react and, and what happens? It's tough for me to see either of these guys you know, like shooting for a desperation takedown when they, when they get rung up. But I have the feeling one or the other is going to do it. Uh, give me Zalal in, in this fight. He's, you know, he's obviously been much more busy recently. He's been fighting a good high level of competition. And the routes to victory that Taporia demonstrated over him are not routes that uh, Sung Woo Choi is going to be able or probably disposed to even try to take. So I think this is going to be the kind of fight that both guys want, but Zalal will get the better of it. Give me Yusef Zalal by unanimous decision in a likely fight of the night candidate. Wow, fight of the night. So we're going to agree on that. So I'll bury, uh, what do they say, bury the lead or the opposite. I'm doing the opposite. I'm putting the ending up front. Uh, yeah, I'm actually, that's my pick for fight of the night too. I really like this matchup. I like both guys. I'll start with Zalal. As you mentioned, he's so young, 24. He's still developing. Long and lengthy. He uses movement so well, uh, constantly on his bike. Nice leg kicks. Uh, he can check your chin with a very high, fast head kick. He also can do it from distance because he's got those long legs that he kind of close the range with that. Uh, his boxing still needs some development. Uh, there's nothing really spectacular about his hands. Uh, but it's all about his feet, and he uses his step and knee well to keep him range. Uh, while Taporia definitely outworked him in wrestling and bullied him, Zalal is a decent offensive wrestler himself. Uh, he can get takedowns. He's aggressive with submissions. He can get submissions off his back. He can get submissions from the top. The one thing I don't like is that he can get a little over-aggressive with it, and I think that's just his youth where he'll... Um, lose a position by looking for a submission. That said, Taporia put him in so many deep submissions that even though if he gets in a bad position, like he's hard to finish. Like Taporia, there was many times. At one point, Paul Felder thought he he was out because of how deep the submission was, and he showed s such heart. And then also, as what I just mentioned, like the last fight, he's got great cardio. Like when the fight goes deep, as he was getting mauled the whole fight against Taporia, when Taporia's slowed down in the third round. Zolal actually had moments where he started hurting him. Now move over to Choi. Choi looked tremendous in his last fight. Um, sure, it was Sum Suman Baktarian, who's not a very high-level UFC fighter, but he had the performance you should have when you're that much better than a guy. He's a Muay Thai specialist. He's got he's a stalking counter-striker, similar to like uh, Chris Cyborg, where she's pressures you to get you to counter first. Uh, he's got fast hands. He's got accurate hands. He has long arms, and he also knows how to use those long arms. He keeps you at the end of his punches. Everything's tight with him. 
Not a lot of looping shots. They're coming straight down the pipe. I like that at at times he'll kind of like lull you for a second and then just swarm, and it's a flurry of shots. I'm talking seven, eight punch combinations. He also throws a lot of kicks. He's very good in the clinch. If he gets the clinch, he can work you with elbows, with knees. His takedown defense, it's he looked really good in his last fight, but it didn't look that good early in the UFC. So is that a guy who fought lower level competition so it looks better? Or is it a guy because he needed to improve that it has gotten better because he's worked on it? I'm not really sure. If he gets on top, though, he's got his ground control is pretty good and he's got brutal ground and pound. Uh, Pre tape study, I was pretty confident on, on Zalil. However, then when I started doing tape study, I was really, really impressed with Choi. I forgot how good he was. If this fight remains on the feet, we could be in for an incredibly good battle with Choi probably having the upper hand on the striking. That says Zalil probably still has the advantage of the wrestling. So if this goes to the ground, it'll probably be from Zal. I think this is the pick of I think no way should Zalal be a two-to-one favorite. And in fact, not only am I think he shouldn't be a two-one favorite, I'm not picking him. I'm actually taking Choi. I think Choi is going to win. I think he's going to land the – yeah, I think he's going to get taken down a couple of times, but I think he's going to work back to his feet. And I think he's going to land the better shots in the feet. I think it's going to be a really close fight. They give me Choi in my first upset pick of the night and my fight of the night pick. Hey. There you go. We, we've got some fireworks coming out of the shilling corner right off the bat here in the UFC Fight Night 184 prelims. Next up, flyweights take the cage as Molly McCann welcomes Laura Procopio back to the UFC. McCann, the 30-year-old from Liverpool, is 10-3 and as a professional mixed martial artist. She is 3-2 since joining the UFC in 2018. She'll be taking on Procopio who was out for all of 2020. The 25-year-old Brazilian is 6-1 in her professional mixed martial arts career. She made her UFC debut in August of 2019 at UFC Fight Night Andrade versus Zhang, losing a split decision to Carol Rosa. She has been out ever since, so nearly a year and a half. The odds possibly reflecting that show Procopio as a slight underdog, around plus 140 where you can get meatball molly at minus 150 if the uh if that's more to your liking keith who wins this one uh, not the fans <laughs> that right now um uh, you know what i actually like molly mccann if your nickname is meatball like like she'd be like someone like i'd love to like have shots with like she seemed like she'd be fun like life of the party kind of person uh breaking down her style uh high output striker pretty fast hands she switches stances a lot a lot of movement uh she kind of likes to stay all the way out and then suddenly dart into range uh though getting to the pocket is just the best rate like i think she should just get to the pocket and stay there uh, she is heavy on her lead leg which helps generate some power but as we saw in the Talia Santos fight uh, makes her really open to leg kicks and teep kicks because of that. She was kind of beat up there bad. She also telegraphs a lot of her shots because she loads up on everything. I think her best trait might be like the other route, like trying to get to the fight to the ground, trying to grind. 
if she can press you against the cage, just stay busy in the dirty boxing. She's a pretty decent wrestler, though she's not a good um, defensive wrestler, just not a good grappler. If she gets put on her back, she really struggles to get up. We saw that to bring up the Santos fight again. Santos took her down, and she really struggled to get up. Cardio is also a straight to Molly McCann. Like, she'll work the entire 15 minutes. Even though you put her on her back, like, she'll be elbowing from on bottom. Uh, she'll be moving her hips. So that's always good. And she's also just, like, a tough girl where she can just take a beating and just keep going forward. Like, she's even though she's outclassed like she was in the Santos fight, she's going to make it tough for the whole 15 minutes. Now move over to Procopio. She hasn't fought in 18 months, as you mentioned. Like, she's been out for a long time, which is not good. She's not very athletic. She's kind of slow, kind of flat-footed. She does have a high output, though. And the reason why I think she has such a high output is because she has no power. It's all mostly arm punches. Her jab is her best weapon. Everything comes off of her jab. And she kind of is just a basic one-two striker. And I don't even mean that as an insult. Like, I think more fighters should be just your basic jab straight jab straight uh she also throws a lot of calf kicks which is good defensively her biggest floor she has no head movement she's very hittable she is a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt but really struggles to get to fight to the ground she's a girl that she goes to jiu-jitsu class but hasn't taken a lot of wrestling classes uh she looks for takedowns but she kind of just reaches or shoots without sending it up without driving through the hips pre-tape study i thought mccann was gonna maul procopio uh, that says Procopio is pretty tough. I'll give her like she's a tough girl. Like she'll take a beating. I think this fight might be closer than I first thought. Uh, that said, I still think McCann can outwork her. I think she can get to the clinch and grind her out a little bit there. Maybe get a takedown and have to avoid some submission attempts. So give me McCann, and I'll, and I'll say she wins by decision. Excellent. I I agree that if you're going to be a, a woman who is nicknamed Meatball, like you couldn't do much better than McCann. She is, this won't be a delicate way to put it, but she's a squat flyweight. You know, she's just kind of short and uh, thick through the, you know, the shoulders and hips. Uh, she's, she, she does like to brawl. There's something of that stereotypical uh, kind of British uh, striker to her. Jay uh, Petri, Sherdog Associate Editor Jay Petri and I were talking about a fighter who fought this past weekend who shall go nameless, but is a former UFC fighter, uh, you know, toiling it out in the regionals. And Jay referred to him as a Boston-style face-first striker. And he meant it as a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Just just so you know, he he meant it as a compliment, but there's something of that to, to Molly McCann. Uh, win or lose, McCann always kind of looks the same at the end of her fights, like she's been in a fight. Uh, Procopio, interestingly, she she has that same kind of build. Neither of them is a tall, rangy, willowy uh, flyweight. She's 5'4". She, you know, m- makes the 125 mark only with some apparent difficulty. But between the two of them, I expect McCann to be a little more athletic and much stronger and possibly also to have the better gas tank. And in a fight that I find extremely likely to go the distance, gas tank is going to make a difference. The question mark for me is Procopio. Not only is she only 25, at the time of her last fight, she was only 23. Uh, 18 months away for a 23-year-old in this sport, it can do all kinds of things 
to you. It can do all kinds of things to your skill set, whether that means it evolves or it stagnates. It can do all kinds of things to your physique. You know, a 23-year-old athlete, male, female, flyweight, or heavyweight, they're not as strong as they're, they're going to be uh, when they reach their actual physical peak in their, you know, say, late 20s or early 30s. So she may surprise me. She may come out and, you know, have gone from a really high output, you know, kind of pity pat striker to somebody who, who's a little more burly and, and able to grind with McCann. But until I see it, I won't believe it. So I'm with you. Give me McCann in a fight that, even though we kind of made fun of it off the top, uh, you you made fun of it, you, you mean mean guy. But McCann fights are, are usually actually uh, quite a bit of fun to watch. And Procopio's loss to Carol Rosa was a blast. So, yeah, g- give me uh, McCann by decision in a fun fight. And I think the difference will be McCann taking it to the ground and navigating uh, Procopio's guard. And despite, you know, Procopio being the black belt, McCann gets the better of the ground exchanges as well. Phantom weights take the cage next as Carol Rosa squares off against Jocelyn Edwards. Rosa, the 26-year-old Brazilian, is 13 and 3 overall. She is 2 and 0 in the UFC, having beaten Vanessa Mello by unanimous decision at UFC 251 last July, and then the aforementioned Laura Procopio in August of 2019. She'll be taking on Edwards, who makes her second UFC appearance on a very quick turnaround. She fought just three weeks ago, uh, defeating Yanan Wu at UFC on ABC1. She comes right back to replace Nico Montano, who fell off of this card about a week ago. Edwards is 10-2 overall and 1-0 in the UFC. She is a... Healthy underdog in this fight, available around plus 215, where Rosa is sitting around minus 225 as the favorite. Keith, how do you feel about this one? Well, I love the back-to-back female fights. Um, I'm sure Stephen A. Smith will have to take a break from the card, but the rest of us will enjoy it. Stephen A. Smith could take a break (laughs) from the sport forever, and I would be (laughs) A-OK with that. Um. Uh, I think this is an interesting matchup. I'll start with Rosa. She's extremely young. Uh, that's the first thing to stand out. She's at that age where you can make big jumps in improvement. Uh, she's big for the weight class, not so much in height, but she's just a like thick woman. Um, and I don't mean that in an insult by any way. Uh, she's also even bigger for the weight class when she misses weight, like she did, I believe, in her last fight. Uh, she's a trading partner of Jessica Andrade. That's another thing that we're kind of known for. She's a volume striker. She looked a lot better in the fight against Vanessa Mello, I think, than she did against Procopio. Um, she's pretty accurate. Nice jab, nice low kicks. Uh, similar to Procopio with the one-two down the pipe. She's pretty raw defensively. She stands up pretty tall, lacks head movement, kind of flat-footed. She did show in her last fight against Mello that she can sneak in a takedown. And when she's on top, she doesn't have... It shouldn't be ground and pound. It's like should be like ground and busy. Like she gets you down and she just like kind of pit a pat at you. Uh, move over to Edwards. She's also big for the weight class. She's tall, uh, got long arms and legs. She's an aggressive striker, kickboxer, fast hands. She does drop her hands though, so it kind of, 
which is bad defensively, but they kind of come from weird angles because of that. Uh, decent power. Um, throws good. Like I said, she throws from her hips. Hard leg kicks. A lot of hard kicks to the body, too. She likes to strike from the plum clinch. She'll grab that and you know, beat her up there or even sneak in the takedown from there. She's pretty good at scrambling. Uh, not the best takedown defense. But when she's on her back, she'll throw up submissions. Like she almost uh, got a submission off her back in the last fight. This is a hard fight to pick. Uh, Rosa should not be a two to one favorite by any means. Like it should, she should be a two to one favorite over anybody in the UFC right now. Um, this is the first time she's facing anybody in the UFC that she doesn't have a pretty good size advantage on. In fact, she's the smaller fighter in this matchup. I think Rosa is more technically sound. I just think Edwards has a length advantage and a speed advantage. So I'm going another upset. I'm going to take Edwards by split decision. This is my upset special tonight. Ugh, I thought I was going to be alone on this one. Uh, I, I remember, well, I don't have to remember that hard. It was uh, three weeks ago, but I look back to my notes and my recollections from looking at Jocelyn Edwards ahead of her UFC debut. And my main notes were she kicks really hard and she has a lot of early finishes. I'm concerned about how she'll look in a three-round fight against a UFC-level fighter. Uh, both those things were kind of answered against uh, Yanam Wu. Wu, as we discussed, she's not the highest of high-level opposition, but she's at least she's she is a UFC-level uh, bantamweight. And Edwards looked fine for, for 15 minutes. Now I have to ask that question again because she'll be turning around on just a couple weeks' notice, making whatever kind of weight cut she needs to make again uh, to face Rosa. So I have to ask myself questions about her gas tank again. But if you're going to make this kind of bold career move, I think Carol Rosa is kind of the person you want to make it against. Uh Rosa, for as sturdy as she looks, is not an overwhelmingly powerful or physical fighter. And through her UFC run so far, even though she's 2-0, and she's been kind of marked by a tendency to, to fall into her opponent's game, to fight the fight that her opponent wants to, uh, wants to have. When she beats... Uh, Laura Procopio. I think she's I, I think she's a better fighter than Procopio. But that fight was closer and more entertaining than it needed to be because they they fought to Procopio's best advantage. They they fought the Procopio fight. If she does that to Edwards, I think she's gonna lose badly. I don't think she'll necessarily do that, but I think Edwards is just a better fighter with a higher ceiling. And if these two were coming to this fight on full camps with full time to prepare for each other, I have to imagine this fight would be close to a pick'em. But yeah, I if Edwards loses, I won't be shocked. You know, Rose is a good fighter. Rose is more proven against higher level opposition, and Edwards is on that short turnaround. But I'm picking the upset as well. Uh, give me Jocelyn Edwards by decision in this one. Next up, it's the lightweights. As Devontae Smith returns to the UFC after over a year away from the sport to take on Justin Janes. Smith, the 27-year-old from Bedford, Ohio, is 10-2 as a professional mixed martial artist. He is 2-1 and 
in the UFC since joining off of the 2018 edition of Dana White's Contender Series. He has not fought since a shocking upset knockout loss to Kama Worthy at UFC 241 back in August of 2019. He'll be taking on James, the 31-year-old Michigan native by way of Las Vegas, is 16-6. and six. Overall, he is 1-2 and two in the UFC. He made a short-notice debut last June and knocked out Frank Camacho in just 41 seconds. That sensational debut paved the way for him to fight twice more in 2020, but things did not go his way as he lost to Gavin Tucker by rear naked choke in August, and then to Gabriel Benitez by TKO in December. Despite the long layoff, uh, Smith is a healthy favorite, one of the stronger favorites on the card, sitting around minus 280, where you can get Janes around plus 245 or plus 250. I will say that I am feeling those odds. Uh, Janes, uh, I should point out, is stepping up on one week's notice replacing uh, Alex De Silva Coelho. That, I mean, that's a tough thing for Smith because obviously a late replacement is tough, but uh, Alex De Silva and Justin James are about as different uh, pair of fighters as you could get just in terms of physicality, skill set, and tendencies within the cage. Having said that, this is a much more, much more advantageous matchup for Smith. Uh, Everything that Janes does well, I mean, we just had to talk about the Boston-style face-first striker. I don't know if there's such a thing as a Detroit-style face-first striker, but uh, Janes is a brawler, and he is a short guy for the weight class and has short arms for the weight class. He is a bit of the American Artem Lobov vibe going on. Those are bad things against uh, Smith. Uh, you know, Smith is a very... Uh, he's a powerful striker. He has excellent uh, hands as well as kicks. And I'm sure you'll map out the X's and O's better than I will, and, unless you're going to shock me and, and pick Janes in this fight. But I think Janes is just going to march forward and march forward right uh, onto the gunnery range. You know, S Smith is going to be able to tag him up at distance. He's going to be able to hurt him as Jane struggles to get into the range where he really wants to get his offense off. Give me Devonte Smith in a resounding return to the UFC by first round knockout. Yeah. So I'm really disappointed that uh, De Silva is off this card. Cause that was a very exciting matchup. It might've been the best matchup on the card from an X's and O's standpoint. I'm really disappointed about that. Uh, as far as X and O's from this one, I, I'm with you on this one. This should be a whitewashing. I'll start with Smith. He's only 27, so you got to like that. He's an aggressive striker. Can be too aggressive at times. Uh, he can get a little wild, kind of throw out the game plan out, just relying on athleticism over technique uh, because he has so much athleticism. Now, he did change it up a little bit in the Worthy fight. Uh, he might have actually been too patient in that fight. That might have been, you know, his UFC debut, uh, you know, testing it out a little bit, made a little bit of nerves in there, so that might be why he was different. Uh, but when you talk about his raw skills, fast hands, uh, explosive power, his step in right and his uppercuts are two of his best strikes, really good strikes. He likes step in knees. 
he suddenly he suddenly was throwing a lot of calf kicks against Kama Worthy, which is nice that he added that wrinkle to his game. But you got to get a little worried about his chin, though. I mean, he was knocked out in his last fight, so you always wonder if that will change him heading this one. Uh, when he gets in the clinch, he lands hard knees. He's a serviceable wrestler uh, as he as he wrestled in high school, but he's not a powerhouse. And I don't think we'll see wrestling from him in this fight. Uh, he was actually in one of his other losses to John Gunther of all people. Actually, out wrestled him for the entire fight. Uh, it, but if he if scramble and suits, he ends up top. This is not a guy you want on bottom because he hits hard and he's aggressive with the with the ground and pound. Um, move over to James. James is going to give him the fight he wants. James is going to probably try to brawl with him. He's he's doesn't throw a lot of kicks. He's just going to throw punches. Um, kind of not a lot of elbows, not a lot of knees, just just punches. He's aggressive. He'll slide in the pocket, unload big shots. He likes to lead with an uppercut, which is an extremely dangerous punch to throw. Uh, but he has surprising power. Like he, If he connects, he can hurt you. Uh, he loses, and I said this last time we were talking about, he loses some of his power because he doesn't stay tight. He kind of They kind of loop a little bit. Um, and he also loads up, so he kind of loses some speed on that. And he'll tire out because he loads up on everything. Uh, his last fight at Gabriel Benitez, he, Gabriel Benitez was just so much faster than him, more technically sound than him. Uh, Benitez really hurt him in the body and the legs. Uh, he has a wrestling background, though you don't really see it much. I don't think it's a UFC level. Like I don't think it's good enough wrestling where it really matters on on this level. Uh, but if you get a, a scramble, he'll look for a guillotine. Like that's what he tries to get. Um, he he actually almost caught Gavin Tucker in that fight with it. Uh, his sub defense is bad though. Like uh, he was submitted by Gavin Tucker in that fight. I'm with you. This should this should be a bounce back fight for Smith. He went from a very high prospect into Silva to um, kind of a journeyman in Jane's. Uh, he's way too fast for him. I think he lands hot shots. I think he puts him out. Uh, I think he probably puts him out for first round. But I'll say Jane's is tough, so I'll say second round. I'll say Smith knocks him out in the second round. There you go. Two knockout picks for the returning Devontae Smith. The UFC Fight Night 184 prelims move on with a pair of Bantamweights, both looking for a do-over in their own way, as Timur Valiev takes on Martin Day. Valiev, the 31-year-old Dagestani, is 16-2 with one no contest in his professional mixed martial arts career. He has fought just once in the UFC, and that is the no contest. However, for those of us watching it, it was him getting knocked out by Trevin Jones in the second round of their fight after having arguably won every minute of the fight up until then. That was back at UFC Fight Night Munoz versus Edgar last August. He'll be taking on Martin Day. The 32-year-old Hawaiian is 8-5 and five as a professional mixed martial artist. He is... 0-3 in the UFC, having fought twice last year, both times on short notice, I believe, but having lost to uh, Davey Grant in July by third-round knockout and Anderson Dos Santos in November by first-round guillotine choke. Uh, Day is one of those other types of fighters that we have seen in the UFC since the dawn of the COVID era in that he is 0-3 in the UFC, and where that once was a guaranteed pink slip, he is getting a fourth fight because he is there 
and the UFC uh, needs bodies. Julio Arce dropped out of this fight a week ago, less than a week ago, and Martin the Spartan was there to step in. The odds, however, seem to reflect that as Valiev, possibly the highest favorite on the card, as he's around minus 350 right now, day available at plus 300 if you like him to turn things around. Keith Schillen, do you like day to turn things around? <laughs> you know what? We were talking about Jerome Vera, like how tough he is to take a fight on short notice. Uh, Martin Day can be put in that category because I don't think there's a lot of people who's stepping up to fight Valiev on any notice, never mind on short notice. So I give him credit for that. I want to talk about Valiev's last fight. I, we try to stick to these fights. Don't try to go too far down, uh, you know, rabbit hole. But Chris Tyone in that fight I thought was t- horrendous. And what I mean by that is his stoppage, if you just saw the stoppage where uh, – Trevor Jones, Trevor Jones, Trevor Jones, hurt Valiev. That was okay. Like I'm okay with that stoppage. It was a little on the early side, but I'm okay with it. But my issue is, Valiev hit Jones with everything, hurt him multiple times. There was many times you could stop it. it. Looked like the fight was over. He let Jones recover, have moments of that, and then as soon as Valiev gets hurt in the second, he jumps in immediately. Like, why'd you give one guy, like, so much rope and the other guy none? Um, I I don't know. I, I thought it was a terrible stoppage. Anyways, moving on. Now, so let me back. I don't mean it's – by itself, it's okay stoppage. But when you add in the two parts, it's, it's a terrible stoppage. Anyways, move on to uh, this, these guys. Uh, Valif, he's fantastic. He's a well-rounded fighter, great striker, very athletic, high output, constant pressure. Stays busy with his movement, uses feints wells, constantly changing angles. Con- I really like that he constantly changing attacks. I can't remember in his last in his UFC f- debut who was commentating, but they were talking about that. He has such a variety of strikes, and he's always changing up what you're going to get hit with. Uh, he's cr- very creative in that way. Good head movement, really good at slipping attacks, and then landing his own power shots, targets the body. He hurt Jones with a body shot, tons of kicks. Teep kicks, calf kicks, high kicks, like spinning attacks, uh, just so many tools. And then he can wrestle. Like he can take you down, ground and pound you, um, submit you. Like he's got he's he's got it all. Like I'm really high on this guy. Now move over to Day. Um, Day's as you mentioned, he's probably getting another chance because the UFC needs people during this COVID era. Uh, being a teammate of Max Holloway probably helps too. Uh, he's long and lengthy, nice jab, nice teep kicks, what you expect from long fighters. Uh, he does keep his hands a little low, stands up kind of tall, too. He's kind of like tall man's defense. Uh, in scrambles, he looks for guillotines, looks for Darce jokes. But uh, nothing really stands out. Like, there's n- he should be no match for Valiev. He- he's 0-3. He's been stopped in his last two fights, one by knockout, one by submission. If Valiev is okay from the knockout, like if he's not didn't take up more damage than I thought he did, like this should be a just absolute showcase fight. I think he batters Martin on the feet. I think he batters him on the ground. Um, I think he drops him probably with like a kick or a punch to the body. And I think Valiev gets him out of there early. So I'm taking Valiev by first round TKO. Awesome. I'm I'm looking back or thinking back to 
what I thought about Day before his last couple of fights, because I believe we've done previews for, we did previews for both of his fights in 2020. And my notes, this guy might have the longest legs pound for pound in the UFC. And I'm not sure this guy does anything at a UFC level. And that sounds horrible to say, but you know what? There are, you know, tens of thousands of fighters out there and about 550 of them are in the UFC. You know, like 98% of fighters don't do, don't do anything at a UFC level. And 99% of them don't do more than one thing at a UFC level that could like actually allow them to stick on roster. So it's not meant to be insulting, but even though he's from the same camp as Max Holloway and in broad strokes, his game kind of looks like it and his frame kind of looks like it. He's not. The one thing he does pretty well is throw kicks, but when your your legs are five feet long, you, you should be able to to throw some pretty good kicks. But even that, you know, it, his kicks get countered too easily. You know, so even that, which is probably his best individual skill, you know, is not really a weapon at the UFC level. Whereas you already mentioned, Valiev has all the weapons. He He's one of those guys, you know, when you get someone coming over from... Uh, Dagestan, you know, Central Asia, the the CIS, who's 15 and 1 or 13 and 0 or 18 and 2, you never know exactly what you're getting. A lot of times their their record can be a bit of smoke and mirrors. Baliev is not one of those guys. He has a bit of that Zabit Magomed Sharipov thing, but where Zabit is a wild man, Valiev is more of a deliberate craftsman. He has all those weapons, you know, kicks low, medium, and high spinning shit if you want it, uh, elbows. Like, just, he has all the weapons, but he, it's almost like he takes his time to, like, pick the perfect tool for the job b- before he lays it out on the other guy. And that uh, that kind of deliberation is the the only thing that makes me think this is going to get past the first round. I, I, you know, give me this fight to get to the, the second round. Just, he might be a little tentative since he got knocked out in his last fight. And even at the regional level and at the PFL level, you know, he let some guys make it to the final bell that he probably could have finished. So just due to that, I'm going to say day makes it to the second round, but the dynamic is exactly what, what you put out there. He's going to hurt him on the feet. He's going to hurt him bad. It'll probably end up on the ground, whether just cause day is rocked and just goes lunging for his legs or Valiev, you know, takes an opportunistic takedown. But then, yeah, give me Valiev to take days back and either choke him out or just pound him out. Uh, I'll say choke him out. So second round submission for Timur Valiev. He survives and advances, and he is one of the most exciting prospects in this division. We are in the home stretch of the lengthy prelims of UFC Vegas 18. And Keith could not have teed this one up better by mentioning bad nights at the office for referee Chris Taglioni because it is... Light heavyweights, Mike Rodriguez, recipient of Sherdog's Robbery of the Year for 2020, thanks to Tayoni, versus Danilo Marquez. Before we get to that, however, the specifics on the fighters. Rodriguez, the 32-year-old Bostonian, is 11-5 with one no contest. As a professional mixed martial artist, he is 2-3 in the UFC. Marquez, the 35-year-old Brazilian, is 10 and 2. He is 1 and 0 in the UFC, having made an appearance 
last September at UFC 253, taking a unanimous decision over Kadas Ibrahimov. Rodriguez, a strong favorite, sitting around minus 230. Marquez is available at plus 200. Keith, how do you see this one breaking down? Well, man, this... <laughs> Can I change my grade earlier in the card where I was seeing how great the card is? Because <laughs> this is not a good light heavyweight matchup. Uh, I'll start with Mike Rodriguez. Mike Rodriguez is a guy that I see him a lot of the local shows, obviously a New England guy. Uh, he's just a huge man. Like the, how he makes light heavyweight is shocking to me. He's a huge, he looks like a heavyweight. Uh, Southpaw, his boxing, he's known for striking, but his boxing isn't great. Like there's nothing that really stands out. Like obviously he has some power. He's a light heavyweight, um, but he makes a mistake, but he, he throws one strike at a time. Like that's a, a very big flaw of him. Uh, he does work the body, but he works the body with kicks and knees. Like, that's his strength. He's more of a uh, kickboxer. Um, and we've really seen this crushing power with his kicks. Like, we saw it against Ed Herman. He has this, like, slapping uh, from the southpaw stance kick to orthodox fighters' ribs. His clinch game is good because he's so big. He'll throw some nice elbows. He also has those knees. Uh, he also can defend takedowns from the clinch because if you're dropping down on his hips, he has that like Travis Brown type defense where you kind of push down in the head and then elbow you. Uh, but though he really can't stop takedowns from distance. Uh, if you're shooting on his hips uh, in the middle of the cage, that's a problem for Mike Rodriguez. Uh, he also has no offensive wrestling. Like just doesn't exist. You don't see him go for a takedown. He, he's just not really a good wrestler. And his sub-defense is bad. Uh, as we talked about Chris Dione, Chris Dione screwed him with that you know, legal knee that was called a groin shot, which should have been a TKO win. Let's not forget that he was still winning the fight in the third period against a 40-year-old Ed Herman who found a Kimura while being on his back late in the fight. Like, that always gets glossed over that he kind of blew that against Ed Herman. Um, and I do know that Ed Herman finished it from the top, but he started on the bottom and swept him. Move over to Marquez. Marquez is unathletic. On the feet is just kind of ugly. He has like a herky-jerky style. I said this last time before his debut. He kind of just moves just to move. He doesn't really set up anything with it. Uh, low output, which might be bad if him and Mike Rodriguez throw one strike at a time. He does have like hard leg kicks because he has big legs. He has that like thudding, uh, just just those guys that just get big legs. Uh, his chin is a question mark though. Uh, I mentioned it last time. I saw him get knocked out on the regional scene by a guy with a six and six record. Uh, that doesn't give you a lot of confidence. Uh, he's a jujitsu guy. He just reaches for takedowns. He doesn't really shoot. He'll pull guard. Uh, he has a black belt. And trains with Damon Maya, so you have to assume his jiu-jitsu is really good. Uh, and he did get in his fight against uh, I, I might butcher this name, Abrahimov. He he got his back a couple times, uh, but he also slowed. Like it was a slow, unathletic matchup, and he was gassing in it. So this is a tough call because both guys are low level. Um, it's your classic striker versus grappler. In those cases, I usually take the grappler, 
But as much as I don't trust Mike Rodriguez, I don't trust Danilo Marquez at all. Lise Rodriguez has some power. So I did this a couple weeks ago, and I said, stand up, New England. And it, it was one of the worst beatdowns in history. So let's try it again. Stand up, New England. I'm taking Mike Rodriguez by first round KO. When Marquez made his uh, UFC debut last uh, September, he's a he was a thirty. I think I think he was still thirty four at the time, but a thirty four year old who hadn't fought in two and a half years. I was like, what What is this even for? Like, what is he even on this card for? And looking at his tape, I was like, what does he, again, what does he do at a UFC level? And my conclusion was, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, he, you, you saw the fight where he got rocked by a 500 fighter. I saw fights where he beat a guy who's like, oh, and six. Unfortunately, he got matched up against Kata Sabragimov, who on paper might be the worst 205er to get four fights in the UFC in the last five years. So I still don't know anything more about him than I did before, really. And Rodriguez, for all of his flaws, for all of his limitations, he does have weapons and he's willing to use them. When I'm looking at relatively low level MMA and hey, this is the UFC, this is the greatest promotion in the world. But at least by UFC standards, this is pretty low level. I mean, we're talking about Mike Rodriguez, who's two and three. And if not for a USADA violation by one of his opponents, would be two and four in the UFC. And they found the guy that he's a two and a half to one favorite over. This is low level. When I'm looking at a low level fight, the simplest way I can break it down is all you need is one good weapon and uh Aggression, the the willingness to put on pressure. Rodriguez has both those things. Because of that, I'm going to make it real simple for myself. And this is what I said when I shut off my tape study with a migraine after about eight minutes. Give me Rodriguez by first round knockout. That brings us to our featured prelim of the evening. In a fight between two storied lightweight uh, veterans of the Octagon. The good news is that... Between the two of them, Michael Johnson and Clay Guida have 52 octagon appearances. The bad news is that they are collectively 26 and 26 in the UFC. Johnson, the 34-year-old native of St. Louis, is 19 and 16. Overall, he is 11 and 12 since joining the UFC out of the 12th season of the Ultimate Fighter reality show. He'll be taking on Guida. The 39-year-old Chicago native is 35 and 20, 15 and 14 since joining the UFC in 2006. Johnson is a healthy favorite, available around minus 215, where Guida can be had around plus 180 to plus 185 as the underdog. Johnson comes into the fight on a three-fight losing streak, having lost to Tiago Moises last May via Achilles lock early in the second round of a fight he had been winning. Previous to that, having lost to Stephen Ray in October 2019 and been knocked out by Josh Emmett 
in March of 2019. Guida has lost back-to-back fights, dropping a unanimous decision to Bobby Green last June at UFC on ESPN 11, then been choked out in short order by the resurgent Jim Miller in August of 2019. Previous to that, he defeated BJ Penn at UFC 237, just for an indicator of how long it has been since he had his hand raised in the octagon. You know, when I look at this, obviously many people have kind of had the rant about Michael Johnson. I have a lengthy rant to make about Michael Johnson, and I won't make the whole thing here, but it's just shocking to me. And I guess I'll never stop believing in him and never stop being disappointed because in terms of his physical tools and his skill set, he is still the same fighter who uh, beat Edson Barboza, who gave Dustin Poirier, with all due respect to Khabib Nurmagomedov and Conor McGregor, maybe his worst like loss in the octagon. He was the last guy to beat Tony Ferguson forever. And yet, on any given night, he is capable of just absolutely just fumbling the ball. That's that's him. He's 11 and 12 in the UFC, even though he's beaten maybe, you know, two of the 10 best lightweights of all time with ease. And, you know, he was the guy that laid out the blueprint on how to beat Edson Barboza. He was the first guy to beat Edson Barboza without leaning on takedowns. Like he showed you how to outstrike Edson Barboza. Everyone who's outstruck him since has followed the Michael Johnson plan. Crowd him. Use punches to counter his kicks. Don't give him the the room to uncork the the big long, you know, kicks that he wants to throw. That's Michael Johnson. And he's still the same guy. He's he's only 34 years old. I mean, it's possible that under laboratory conditions, you could show that he's lost a little bit off his fastball. But that's not why he loses fights. He's not well, he's not Guida, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, where his physical tools actually have blunted. He is still the same fighter. And that makes him the most endlessly frustrating fighter, perhaps in the entire sport, in my opinion. And look at that. I just gave the long rant. My apologies to people who just want to hear a pick for the fight. Uh, I do like Johnson in this one. I'm nervous anytime he's a two-to-one favorite over anybody because of that aforementioned ability to fumble the ball. So when I look at a Michael Johnson fight, my thought is, okay, if he makes a huge mistake or he just comes out flat and does the thing he used to do where he's just in love with his boxing and thinks making you miss is winning the fight for him, what's the worst-case scenario? And Clay Guida is one of the people least well-equipped to take advantage of Michael Johnson's lapses. I always thought uh, Guida's uh, Guida's strengths, even in his prime, were a little, I'm not going to say overrated, but maybe a little bit overstated. You know, everybody thought he was this incredibly exciting action fighter, but no, he's just a dude that did a lot of kind of, you know, shadow boxing and bouncing and, and his wild hair bounced around. He is, in his prime, he was a good offensive wrestler, but he wasn't like a lights out incredible wrestler. And those things have only eroded as he's gotten older. His gas tank used to be legitimately very, very good. 
you know, it, it was silly that he'd do, you know, jumping jacks or push-ups after, at the end of a fight. But legitimately, in his prime, he was always the fresher guy at the end of the fight, win or lose. Even that has, has declined a little bit. And he is not a finisher. He's one of the most experienced guys in the UFC. He has one finish in the last decade. So, yeah, I mean, Michael Johnson, always capable of making a mistake against Tiago Moises. He pieced him up in the first round. In the second round, he didn't realize the danger he was in until just a split second too late. Because going uh, along with that frustrating narrative, Michael Johnson is fully capable of taking care of himself on the ground. You know, he's a very good wrestler. He's an underratedly good grappler. But, yeah, he, he, he got tapped out, just had a brain fart, did the Michael Johnson thing. If he does that against Guida, I don't think Guida uh, is going to have the chops to finish him. So if Michael Johnson loses to Clay Guida, it's because he gets drawn into, you know, at least two rounds out of three of just bouncing around and thinking because Guida's missing all of his punches, Johnson must be winning the rounds. And I'm willing to bet against that. So give me Michael Johnson by decision in this one. And I don't think it'll be a great fight, unfortunately. Yeah, so there's a lot to comment on. I agree with a lot of things you're saying. So... I think of Michael Johnson, besides all the great wins you talked about, I think about when I saw him in Boston and he just destroyed Joe Lazan when it was that was still a good win. And and it was a scary how dominant he was against Joe Lazan. And then I think the opposite side, in recent memory, when it looks like he's going to beat Josh Evett and then he gets knocked out with like 40 seconds left in the fight. Um, that just sums up Michael Johnson. Like you see the best and the worst of him. And this matchup, well, first of all, shame on us. We talked about the card, and we didn't mention UFC Hall of Famer Clay Guida was on the card. Uh, um, so that's that's our bad. Uh, I agree with your assessment of Guida, even like in his prime. Um, he was a guy who used a lot of movement, but that didn't mean he did a lot of stuff. He threw at the air a lot. He had good output. He was like uh, very Caitlin Chikagian without the long strikes. The more like throw punches in that middle area and pretend you're doing a lot of stuff. Um, and that volume has really dropped because he's gotten older. Um, he's actually at the point on the feet where he's more reliant on one punch, like trying to land an overhand right. And that's a terrible strategy considering he doesn't really have a lot of big punching power. He's never been a one-punch kind of guy. Uh, I... I I might disagree about his wrestling. Like, yes, he's not – he wasn't Josh Koscheck. He wasn't George St. Pierre. Um, but he was very effective with his wrestling. So he had fast entries. He still has fast entries. Um, I look back to his fight against Bobby Green, his last fight. He took Bobby Green down, a former NCAA wrestler, twice. Um, actually picked him up in the air and slayed him. He might, he might still have some of that, like, old man strength where if he can get a limb, he can lift you up and slam you. Uh, but – He's been getting caught in submissions a lot lately. Uh, Charles Oliveira submitted him. Jim Miller submitted him both by guillotine. Now, Charles Oliveira might be the greatest submission artist. Not the greatest grappler, but the greatest submission artist in the history of the UFC. And Jim Miller is no slouch either. So so not knock on that. But he also almost got caught by Bobby Green in his guillotine. So uh, these are issues. And also, you talked about his cardio as, as being a thing. And... I watched the Bobby Green fight. He was still the same thing. Like he wasn't breathing hard. 
in a fight where there was you know a lot of wrestling. But I think his cardio is still intact because his output has dropped a lot. So you can you can you know you can look a lot better as the fight ends. Uh, more with Michael Johnson. You mentioned his age, thirty four. Uh, you said there's you know still hope for him. I've given up on him. I, I've I've refused to get excited about him. <laughs> but when you break down his skills, like I don't find a lot of negative things other than in between his ears. Uh, he's southpaw. He's got fast hands. He's got long arms. He throws straight shots. He'll target the body. He's got power, as you mentioned. He knocked out Dustin Poirier. He almost knocked out Justin Gaethje many times. Uh, he's got a wrestling background, though he doesn't really use it often, but he's got a good sprawl and brawl style. Like, he's hard to take down. Um, but the biggest issue, if you take him down, you can't submit him. This guy gets nine submission losses on his career. Johnson should win. Uh, but he'll probably find a way to lose because it's Michael Johnson, even though we both said there there isn't many ways to lose to Quiguita. Michael Johnson might find <laughs> like he might make it his mission to find a way to lose that we never thought of. Uh that said, he's still younger, he still has more tools. Against my better judgment, I say he stops with takedowns of Guida, and I think he actually eventually catches Guida w- with a shot. So uh I say he's gonna get Guida out of this. So I'll take Johnson, I'll take it by second round uh knockout. With that, we kick off the five-fight main card of UFC Vegas 18. We will stay with the lightweights, albeit lightweights with quite a bit more forward momentum than those in our prelim headliner, as Diego Fajera and Benil Dariush rematched their first meeting, which took place just a little over six years ago. Fajera, 17-2, is 8-2 in the UFC having lost only to Darius and to Dustin Poirier. Since the Poirier loss, he has strung together six straight wins, punctuated by a two-year USADA suspension. But those opponents, nonetheless, Olivier Aubin-Mercier, Jared Gordon, Kyle Nelson, Rustam Habilov, Merbek Tysimov, and most recently, last January, Anthony Pettis, whom he choked out at UFC 246. He will be taking on Darius, the 31-year-old Los Angeles native, is 19-4-1 as a professional. He is 13-4-1 in the UFC. He is on a five-fight winning streak since his last loss, which was to Alexander Hernandez in March 2018. The victims of that five-fight tear, Tiago Moises, Drew Dober, Frank Camacho, and last year, Drakkar Close at UFC 248 in March, and Scott Holtzman, whom he iced with a spinning back fist in the last seconds of the first round of their matchup at UFC Fight Night Lewis versus Olenek in August. This fight started close and has moved to very, very close to a pick'em. Uh, Fajera is uh, out there as low as minus 115 as the tiny favorite, Darius, you can still find at even money, plus 100 a few places, but that has been trending into a true pick'em. Keith, one, how amazing is this fight? And two, who do you like to win? Yeah, so I think you hit the nail right on the head. This is the best fight of the card from a ranking sense, from a competitive sense, from a pick'em sense. From, uh, and I'm also very excited to see what the UFC does with the winner, how they reward the winner, because the winner of this matchup should get a very highly ranked opponent. Um, This is a tough one, man. I flip-flopped on this one. 
Uh, I'll start with Dariush. He's a southpaw who has really improved his striking over the year. Uh, he's a high-volume striker who suddenly has really developed some power. Um, I think he's got knockouts in his last two fights. Um, good knockouts, too. Like, he knocked uh, Drakkar close out cold, and then he had that spitting backfist KO of Scott Holtzman, which was one of the best KOs ever in the UFC. Uh, he loves his overhand left. He kind of wings it a lot instead of kind of waiting for an opening and then really un- like corking it. So that's an issue. Um, but everything else on his feet is pretty clean. Like he throws hard kicks to the body, uh, offensively, defensively, he's still pretty hittable. Um, Dracar close was kind of connecting with him a little bit. Um, Dracar close also showed a hole with the calf kicks. Like he was hurting, but nail Darius calves, uh, Chin has also been a big question mark for Darius. He's got three KO losses in his career, uh, though he hasn't been knocked out in a while. Uh, he's good in the clinch, too. Like, that's a good position for him to get in the clinch. He's got kind of like long legs. He throws his knees up there. Uh, he really batters Scott Holtzman in his last fight in the clinch, where a position that Holtzman, who's just like a hulking kind of dude, they thought people that'd be a position you really don't want to be in with, with such a strong guy. And Darius did great there. Darius has good entries for a non-wrestler. I think it's because he has his long arms. He kind of just uh, he can just reach down and get your legs. And if he takes you down, you're in some big trouble. This is a multi-time no-gi world champion. I mean, this guy's jiu-jitsu is as high as it gets. He's got suffocating top control, slick back takes, eight submission wins. Um, he's he's a stud on the mat. Move over to Carlos Diego Ferreira. And like everything I just said about Darius, you can say about Carlos Diego Ferreira. Now, his his hands aren't fast. They're actually kind of slow, but he just makes up with, with just pure volume. He's a high, very high output striker. He's a pressure striker. He's constantly moving forward. He's got this uh, willingness to eat one or two punches to land three or four of his own. Uh, he broke Maribek Tysimov with his output. And that's really impressive going such a, you know, very good technical striker in Tysonov. But it makes it even more impressive that he did it in Abu Dhabi. And the commentary team was talking about how hot it was in that building, that a lot of fighters were going to be affected by it. And Fajero had this insane output. Um, he has long strikes. Like he throws punches down the pipe, leaves you kind of at the end of, the, of his strikes. Works behind a double jab, which we don't see a lot of them. We always talk about the jab not being used. Seeing a double jab is even less uh, used in MMA. Um, his double jab right hand combo is probably his best go to punch. Uh, I also like that he works the body. He works the body early is because he wants you to slow down late. Um, is so it's like something. I don't know if he really tries to hurt you or he more just tries to tie you down with it. He does like to switch to the south ball. But I don't really think that's his strength. In fact, to me, when he switches to southpaw, he really tries landing kicks from there. That seems like he kind of telegraphed there when he goes to the southpaw. He does check leg kicks, which I like, which very few fighters do. Um, he, if you remember his fight against Anthony Pettis, he kind of came out in this traditional Muay Thai stance. We kept like lift, constantly lifting up his front leg, which was kind of brilliant when you go against a guy like Pettis, whose best strength is his kicks. Uh, decent entries, probably not as strong of a wrestler, pure wrestler as Dariush is, but he's also an elite grappler if he gets in the ground. This is a medalist at the Nogi World Championship. He has seven submission wins. This is the hardest fight to pick, if you ask me. Um, if it hits the mat, we're, we'll be in for a really 
good fight. If hits Matt, I think it'll probably be Darius looking for to get the fight down there, um, because he's more of a the offensive wrestler. But to me, it's probably going to be settled on the feet, and it comes down to uh, De- uh, Carlos Diego Ferreira's output versus Darius's power, which is kind of ironic considering Darius is usually the guy with the high output. Really tough call. I might even switch my pick by the time they actually fight. Uh, but I think Fahir gets the revenge this time just from their pure output. So I'll give me Fahir by split decision. Thank you for that breakdown. It's interesting to me, considering that Darius won their first fight, and it was a competitive fight, but uncontroversially, he he won the fight. And it was six years ago. You would think that he would be the favored fighter going into this. Just, you know, the, the six-year difference, going from 25 to 31 as he has versus 30 to 36, especially in the lightweight division, you'd think that would favor the younger man. Fajera had two years off for a USADA suspension. You always wonder about a fighter coming back from one of those suspensions. Well, you know, are they going to be the same? But I I think the odds are right on here. I, you know, Fajera right now is just barely, it just barely, uh, you know, the favorite. It, it might be a pick him by, by fight time, but he has just absolutely looked fantastic since then. You know, he lost to Darius, then he got knocked out by Poirier, which we have learned in the intervening time is no great shame. And since then, he's been on a tear. And he's not only has he won six straight in a, you know, one of the two toughest divisions in the sport, but he has looked good against guys that it is tough to look good against. Like Rustam Habilov, he was never Khabib Nurmagomedov, but he was a guy that the UFC would throw Kabilov at people they wanted to make look bad. I mean, they used him to like ruin Cajun Johnson's marketability on his way out of the UFC. Cause he was the guy that was like talking about unionizing and fighter rights and stuff. Kabilov is that guy. He was the janitor that the UFC used to kind of take the trash out. So matching Kabilov up against a small lightweight like Fajera, it just sounds like, okay, he's going to suplex this jujitsu guy 16 times and win 30 to 27, you know, across the board. It was not the case. You know, Fajardo looked great against Habilov. Habilov was not able to take him down with any consistency. And Fajardo got the better of the grappling exchanges and pieced him up on the feet. He's looked sensational. So has Dariush. My, my question marks around Fajardo, he is 36 years old. He's, 36 years old in a division where speed does kill. And you, you pointed out, you know, his hand speed is not off the charts fast. He just like throws good volume. He throws good combinations, you know, throwing, throwing proper combinations is a way that you can make up for a speed deficit against another fighter. But that's gotta, that's gotta tell on him at some point. And Darius was much the larger man in the cage. The first time he will be again, this time Fajeda is like I say, I've been in the same room as this guy many times, even though he's Brazilian, he's very much a Texas guy. And he's, he's probably the smallest UFC lightweight I've ever been around that. There's never been any like talk about him dropping to featherweight. You know, he's about five foot eight and he's not like a five foot eight, like Ilir Latifi mini version. He's just not a big guy. And that's, that's never really, you know, played against him. Uh, yeah. I mean, the guy has no bad losses. I, I'm not going to say I called the Tyson Moff fight. 
but I may have been the person least surprised to see him, the fresher guy at the end of the fight. I mean, the guy is from Manaus. Manaus, for those who don't know their Brazilian geography, that is a city in north central Brazil that is just carved out of the rainforest. Uh, then, you know, he moved to the U.S. He's I lived for, I think, 10 or 15 years in the beautiful Rio Grande Valley. The Rio Grande Valley is right on the border with Mexico. And by Texas standards, it's the middle of nowhere. I asked him once, you know, why why the Rio Grande Valley, you know, of all the places you could have moved. He said because the weather reminded him of Manaus. So he is the guy that would go over and fight in a 110-degree room and just be just fine. Uh, as far as the X's and O's go, I think they're largely the same as they were in the first fight. Neither guy has added that many weapons to his arsenal. It's just a question to me of uh, Darius is still capable of a bad loss once in a while. Just a bad loss in the sense that he underperforms. You know, he loses rather than the other guy has to beat him, whereas that still never happened to Fajera. So I think it's going to be a fantastic fight. It's one of the rare fights between two high-level grapplers where even if it plays out on the feet the whole time, it's not going to be like the stereotypical lousy kickboxing match between two grapplers because they're both very good strikers as well. Give me Fajera and give me Fajera in a fight where at least for the first two rounds, there's not even any question of it going to the ground. You know, a, a, fi a fight conducted almost entirely on the feet, maybe in the third round, whoever's behind uh, tries to to shake things up and goes for the takedown, but give me Fajero by decision. Next up, for Cody Stamen. As of the time of this recording, the uh, Bantamweight will be facing the debuting Askar Askar on Saturday, but don't blame him if he's not holding his breath because this would be his third opponent within about two weeks. He was originally scheduled to fight Marab uh, Dwalishvili, who was most recently seen splitting his head open, diving through some lake ice today. Uh, once Marab stepped out, he was replaced by Andre Ewell. But earlier this week, uh, Ewell had to withdraw as well, and he is now replaced by Askar Askar. Stamen, the 31-year-old, is 19-3-1 overall. He is 5-2-1 in the UFC. Uh, his most recent performance, he fought uh, July 15th of last year in a short-notice fight against Jimmy Rivera at uh, Featherweight and lost a unanimous decision. Previous to that, he defeated Brian Kelleher and had a draw with Song Yedong. Askar Askar, the Chicagoan, making his UFC debut, went 11-1 on the regional scene and is stepping up on short notice into the brightest lights. I actually know a little bit about Askar Askar, just because I had to go check into some of his fights to make sure we had his name right. You know, a lot of times when you have someone coming up regionally, you know, if they have their first and last name is the same, it's like, oh, you know, they didn't have his last name at some, like, podunk show he, he fought, and you have to go correct it. Anyway, that's his real name. And he is someone that when I watched his fights, and he fought at L in LFA back in October, at the time of that fight, which is when I was looking at him, I thought, this is a guy that I could see on the Contender Series in 2021. Intriguing prospect, athletic guy. Uh, he wants to kickbox. He's an aggressive kickboxer. He's a pressure guy. Uh, you know, not fully polished yet. I haven't seen much of his ground game, except you know, when taking care of opponents who had to hit a desperation takedown against him because he, he hurt them. 
but I my thought was he he's somebody that we'll probably see on the contender series in 2021. Instead, he's stepping in on short notice against uh, Stamen, and this is a bad look for him. I should have given the odds off the top, but Stamen is around minus 450 right now, uh, where Askar is plus 360. I think that's about right. You know, Stamen, he's he's a bull. He's a big, strong guy. He's exactly the kind of guy that Askar has not really fought on the regionals that I've seen. And Askar's, uh his kickboxing, will it's going to work on some guys at the UFC level, I think. I, I think he will stick around even if he loses his first one or two. But I think uh, Stamen is just going to going to grind him out. He's going to clinch with him, mash him into the fence. He'll get takedowns if he needs to. But give me Stamen to win all three rounds in kind of a dull performance if you're hoping to see some kickboxing fireworks. Yeah. So Asker, Asker is a guy that was introduced to me a, a long time ago by uh, a fellow media member, so I kind of followed him. He was very high on him. I think you're saying that he should be on the contender series, not in the UFC. I think that's perfect. That's what he looks like. He's very raw. Um, I'll start with Stamen. I like Stamen. I like Stamen's style. Uh, and you mentioned how strong he is. I mean, he's just a ripped dude who's going to be even bigger and stronger fighting at 145. He looked great at 145 against Brian Keller. I think he should stay there. Uh, good movement. He cuts angles really well. He has fast hands. Uh, he recently has added a jab to his game. He's got those tight, hard hooks. Uh, I like that he can sneak a high kick behind his strike, so like throw a combo and then th- finish with a high kick. He doesn't fight off his back foot too well. Um, Brian Keller did not have much success against him, but when he did, it was when he was forcing him back. Same with Jimmy Rivera in his last fight. He's a good wrestler. Um, probably, Actually, I say he's a great wrestler. He's got great entries. Uh, he's very good at winning scrambles. Um, you know, he won scrambles. He won some scrambles against Jimmy Rivera, who's a good wrestler. Uh, move over to Asker. Asker. Uh, you talked about his kickboxing. I think you're higher in a kickbox than I am. I, I think he's pretty raw on the feet. Uh, I he does pressure hard. I'll give him credit for that. Um, and I, though I don't think he likes being pressured, sim- similar to. Uh, Mr. Stamen, like Stamen and him are going to kind of be going at it, uh, trying to get the other person back. Uh, he does have some good snap on his punches, but I think he kind of winds up in telegraphs. And I, I think he more throws for his wrestling. Like I think he throws punches to wrestle where I think it might be his best position, though I don't even think he's that good of a wrestler. Um, he doesn't have great entries. He's more um, what he does have is good hip control. Like he won't seem like he comes from a like a Greco-Roman background where if you can get a body lock or like a judo background, he can kind of toss you to the ground that way. Um, if if he doesn't get you down that way, he'll also just push you against the cage and kind of drop down on the leg. Solid top control, um, but he can be kind of he can lay and pray for the top control. He can kind of rest there. Um, when he does strike, it's more of a, as I, I can't remember what I said earlier, but it has like a similar pity patter style, just kind of winning rounds with it, not necessarily trying to end the fight with it. I like Stamen here too. He's a better athlete. He's better on the feet. He's a better wrestler. I I think this is a showcase for him. He could get a decision, um, but Stamen doesn't have a lot of finishes on his career, so I'm going 
guess it's going to be more decisions. So give me Stamen in a decision. I think it might be one of these ones where we see like a 30-26, 30-25 scorecard. I think it's going to be a whitewashing. Bonus question. And I imagine the change was made before you did any study. So just off the top of your head, whom would you have favored between Marab and Stamen? That's a tough one. I might take – see, Marab is such a wild card because of his wrestling. It's can you stop his takedowns, and Stamen might have that style too. Man, I don't know. I, I might go Marab. That's one I'd have to really tape study. But the the next one, uh, Andre Yule fight, mm-hmm. I definitely would have taken Stamen. Okay, great. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on both of those. Next up at UFC Fight Night 184, it's flyweights as Alessandra Pantoja welcomes the long-awaited former Ryzen champ, Manel Kopp, to the UFC. Pantoja, the 30-year-old Brazilian, is 22-5, and 6-3 in the UFC. Last year, he fought just once, dropping a unanimous decision to Askar Askarov at... UFC Fight Night Figueredo versus Benavidez 2 in July. Cop was signed by the UFC in 2019 off of a three-fight winning streak in the Ryzen ring. He uh, defeated Kai Asakura on New Year's Eve. Before that, he knocked out Takeya Mizugaki in August and knocked out Seichiro Ito in April. Cop, for various reasons, delayed from making his Octagon debut until now, but certainly one of the more highly uh, anticipated debuts of its kind. Pantoja, nonetheless, a slight favorite. He is out there around minus 135 right now, where the Angolan is available at plus 115 as a slight underdog. Keith? Is Cop going to keep the winning streak going here, or is Pantoja going to uh, ruin the coming out party? Wow. So this is a fantastic matchup. This We talked about in the beginning how good of a card this is. This is why. Like, the next run we're on, um, it's just great fight after great fight. Or uh, And this might be the best one of all. I know I just recently said that about uh, Dariush and, and Carlos Diego Ferrer, but this one's right up there. Um, I'll start with Pantoja. He's a more well-known guy. The guy who's been fighting in the UFC for a long time. He's well-rounded. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. Um, he can get it done on the feet or the ground. He's got fast hands. He's got some good power. I mean, you see recently he he face-planted Matt Schnell in their fight. He That's what he wants. He loves to brawl. For a guy who has a prestigious background, he loves to brawl it out on the feet. Uh, he's good in the pocket. Like That's where he likes to throw. Uh, which is surprising because he doesn't have the best head movement. He He's willing to eat a shot, to land one. He kind of trusts his own chin more than he trusts his opponent's chin. Uh, and he get a little wild with that. He's been hurt. I mean, like even though he face-planted Matt Snell, Snell also hurt him in that fight too. Uh, he's heavy on his front foot, which is good when you're in the pocket because you're kind of in, as you talked about how to beat Edson Barroso, you're in that uh, close range where it's hard to throw kicks. So that's good because he's loading up and getting power, but it's bad when he's at distance because then he gets those legs taken out. Uh, he is a good grappler, one of the best grapplers in the flyweight division. Uh, takedowns from the clinch or entries. He's got some eight submission wins. He's got some fantastic back takes. Um, besides his submission wins, he's got like a, a big variety of sub-attempts. Like he could go from an armbar to a guillotine to a heel hook. Um, 
and he can get submissions from both top and bottom, which is good. If you end up taking him down, he's got a good get-up game. Sometimes he he does play BJJ a little bit uh, off his back, but uh, if the moment is there, he'll, he will scramble. Uh, the one thing that really disturbs me, though, is against uh, Asker Askarov, not Asker Asker, who's also fighting this guy, Asker Askarov, <laughs> which will be, uh, I'm sure it'll be hard during our recap. Uh, he slowed down a lot based on Askarov's like, high amount of wrestling that was in that match. And that could be a sign of a guy who's declining. Uh, as far as cop, uh, he's been out for a year, which is obviously a big issue. He's changing organizations, which is a big issue. Dropping a weight class. Like, there's a lot of things uh, that's going to make his debut difficult. And then he gets thrown to the wolf. Uh, he's an exciting striker. Like, a, probably the most dynamic striker in the flyweight division besides the champion. He's got big power. He really steps in in his shots. He can fight from both stances. He'll sw- uh, he'll switch stances mid-attack, which you know we've talked about in the past. is something I really like. He does drop his hands, though, and, and relies on head movement a lot. When I see him, he reminds me of like, the black version of Takonori Gomi. If you remember, Takano Garmi kind of kept his hands kind of wide out, a lot of hard hooks, hands lower, light on moving out of the shot, moving away from shots, will attack the body, similar to what Takano Gomi does. Um, and that really excites me because Takano Gomi was one of the most exciting fighters in the history of MMA. Uh, kept also taggers, calf kicks. He's got a very fast high kick. Uh, his offensive grappling... Um, I wouldn't say it's non-existent, but it's he has some grappling. He just decides he doesn't really look to use it. He wants to excite you. His takedown defense is bad, though. He struggles to get off the bottom. Uh, his last loss was Okasaki, and Okasaki just won a wrestling match. He turned the whole match up into a wrestling match, and Cop really struggled. Um, if Pantoja stands with Cop, I think Cop will lay him out. Um, he probably will get knocked out, and. I don't trust Pantoja enough to to say that he won't do that. Like, he'll stick to a game plan. Like, that might not be the case. However, if Pantoja can turn this into a grappling matchup, he should style on Cop. So, it's a really tough call. I'm going to go with Pantoja just because the biggest weakness is on Cop. Uh, I think Pantoja will, will play a safe. I think he'll get some takedowns. And I think he'll get a submission. And I actually think he's going to get a submission early. So give me Pantoja, and I'm going to say he gets a first-round submission. All right. We've agreed a lot tonight. So it's nice, you know, to spice up the stew with a little bit of dissension. But this is one of those uh, fights where I think we both see the same dynamic. We both see the same set of likely possible outcomes. So the only real difference is in the nuance of which way we think it'll actually turn out. It's not like one of us thinks fighter A is the better wrestler and the other one thinks fighter B is. Uh, I, I worry about cop at flyweight, just him making 125 for the first time, not having fought in over a year, always gives me a little pause. Now, he's a he's a professional. He's a high-level athlete. I think he'll make the weight. Just the question will be, how does he look? Because, you know, his gas tank was not endless, even at 135. I do find the Ulka Sasaki fight uh, 
just well at the time i found it depressing because i was watching on new year's eve with people that aren't real hardcore fans and they just wanted to see like the uh uh mayweather intention like stuff and that's what happened that night so i was like oh watch this you're gonna love this guy and then this giant praying mantis who washed out of the UFC, like I think he was like three and six when he washed out of the UFC, just out wrestled cop for three rounds. It was terrible. And, and I was embarrassed in front of all my friends. I shouldn't trust him again after that, especially uh, against a guy who ran through Sasaki like a hot knife through butter, which Pantoja did. And it's also, I mean, Pantoja has been hurt, but he's not been knocked out. So I feel strange predicting that I'm going to see something I've never seen before. And you hear me here trying to talk myself out of picking cop and I can't do it because I don't trust Pantoja to fight to his best advantage. And I think even, even if he would fight to his best advantage, you know, if, if he was shown the error of his ways, I don't think he's going to have that margin for error. I think cop hits hard enough and he's precise enough that Pantoja is just not going to get the chance to learn the hard way. It, it's, I like that you compared cop to uh, Davis and Figueredo in the dynamism of their striking. Cause neither of them are high output guys. Uh, Figueredo, I think again, because that's how he's learned to manage his gas tank as such a Titanic flyweight. But for whatever reason, cop also, they're, they're not flurry of blows guys. They're both from that Jose Aldo, wait, 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 and then hit you with a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, more more of the the sniper school. I think that's what's going to happen. Pantoja's going to come out. Everything in his heart and soul wants to brawl and wants to win a brawl. And he's going to try, and he's going to play with fire, and he's going to get burned. So even though you and I see the factors at play in this fight largely the same one of us is picking one guy by first round finish and the other of us is picking the other guy by first round finish so we have dissension give me manel cop by first round knockout with that we come to the co-main event in the bantamweight division Corey sandhagen taking on the would not be uh overstating the case to call him a, a living legend frankie edgar Sandhagen, the 28-year-old, is 13-2 in his professional career. He is 6-1 in the UFC. He'll be taking on Edgar, the former lightweight champ, the former featherweight title challenger. Edgar, the 39-year-old from Tom's River, New Jersey, is 24-8-1 overall. He is 18-8-1 in the UFC. He, along with... Donald Cerrone and a few others are basically juggling the UFC record book uh, for all of the longevity and volume related records each time uh, they fight. Edgar is the biggest underdog of anybody on the card who is not a short notice replacement. He's out there at plus 330. If you're a true believer, if you are a miserable square, you can get Sandhagen at minus 400. Keith Schillen, before you give us your pick on this fight, tell me how sad you're going to be at the end of it. And alternately, if Edgar wins, tell me how hard the UFC will try to get him into a Bantamweight title shot. Well, I think he will fight for the title if he wins. I mean, to even be in a matchup like this being that, I mean, if he lost to Munoz, which a lot of people thought, how many how many losses in a row would that be for? Would that be three in a row? 
I mean, Holloway. It, it would have been, yeah, it would have been three in a uh, three in a row and four of five. He beat four Tom Swanson five. in the middle, yeah, of all that. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, four of five. I mean, he had, he was a one fight winning streak when he challenged Max Holloway for the title. Um, and I understand it. I understand like your window to get this guy a shot is small. It's kind of like why Dan Henderson jumped the line against Michael Bisping. Like, there's not a lot of time, so cash in on this name before they're gone. Um, the other question is, what was the other question you said? How sad will you be at the end? But you can just say that after your prediction if you want, really. Yeah, it's going to be sad. Um, it's going to be sad because I don't know anybody who's not a fan of Frank Edgar. You know, like, obviously, we, do, we don't root... We root for our picks. We root for what we pick. And when we root for our picks, we want rooting for ourselves because we want to be right. But uh, everybody likes Frankie Edgar. He's one of the true good guys in the sport, a good ambassador, a guy who is undersized during his title run in the best weight class in MMA or one of the best weight classes in MMA. He was, yeah, think of the size difference between him and Gray Maynard, right? Or when he lost the belt to Benson Henderson. And, um, just that. He had that overcomer. I mean, he won. He won the title from BJ Penn when BJ Penn was like considered like an MMA god. Uh, just incredible. Just a hardworking, blue collar kind of guy. Just the kind of guy you like. Um, as far as the X's and O's in this fight, we kind of know what we're gonna get with Frankie Edgar. Uh, you know, he's lots of movement, tight boxing, high output. He'll dart in and out of range to unload combinations. His hands are still fairly fast. Um, he's added calf kicks to his game, but he's had some blips recently. I mean, do we think about the on the feet against Max Holloway? He really struggled with the simply the range of Max Holloway, and he also struggled by for not being the higher output guy or someone that can match his output like Max Holloway can. Um, Pedro Munoz beat him up with a jab and calf kicks. Pedro Munoz won that fight. Uh, it wasn't a robbery. It wasn't one of these all-time, how did someone score that? Like, I can understand how someone scored it, but Pedro Munoz probably should have won that fight. Uh, the other thing about Frank Yeager on the feet that's worrisome is his chin might be gone. I mean, you think about the wars he had against Gray Maynard with his heart multiple times on the feet. You think about Brian Ortega knocking him out called like lifting him up in the air. The Korean zombie hurt him multiple times before that fight was stopped. So his chin is an issue. Now, when you think of Frank Yeager, obviously you got to think about his wrestling. He's got good entries. He has that um, that like awkward knee tap where he reaches for the head and then knee taps. Um, the other thing, he's relentless. And, and that word gets thrown out there a lot when it comes to wrestlers, like they're relentless to get the takedown. But it's actually true with Frank Yeager. Frank Yeager will miss 10 takedowns and still shoot for number 11. Um, case in point, Max Holloway. Like he got some takedowns in Max Holloway, even though he Max Holloway has one of the historically one of the best takedown defenses in history, and he was doing Max Holloway stuff by stuffing his takedowns, and Frank Edgar was still looking for it. Um, I've always thought his ground game, like when he gets the ground, might be a little overrated. Uh, he has solid top control, but it's not smothering. You can get up with Frank Edgar, and usually that's just from being smaller than his opponents. Um, he's not gonna have the strength to hold someone down, uh, but he's can ground and pound you if he does. He's that's what he looks for. Um, 
And the two other things that stand out with Frank Yeager is obviously his legendary heart. All you gotta do is look at the the Maynard fights, you know, all the story we talked about, and, and his cardio. Regardless, even when he's getting beat up by Max Holloway, he's gonna go deep the whole time. Move over to Corey Sanhagen. I mean, this guy's in his prime, or at least he's entering his prime. Much different in the situation than Frank Yeager is. He's long and he's lanky. He's so fluid. Um, he's, I mean, he's got he's five inches taller than Frank Yeager. He's only got a two inch reach advantage, uh, but I think that's a little deceiving. He's got good movement. He doesn't have that Dominic Cruz type movement that a lot of people try to compare him to. He doesn't move as much, uh, but he switches stances. Can fight well from both stances, which is a big key. Similar to like a Max Holloway, a lot of guys will switch stances, but they're not equally as good in both stances. Uh, Stan Hagen might be. Uses a lot of feints to keep you guessing. He just touches, which is I've always think is a benefit, which really conserves your energy. Um, he's starting to develop power. He, he's not a big puncher, but he's starting to develop it. So if he starts Frank Yeager, it wouldn't shock me. Uh, similar to we were talking about Carlos, Figo, uh, Carlos Diego Ferreira attacking the body to kind of slow you down. That's something that San Hagen does. Uh, he likes to use his long legs and knees and close. Uh, if it's at a distance, he'll just kick. He'll be kicks all day. Kicks from the outside, calf kicks. He's a solid wrestler, but nowhere near Frank Yeager's level. He, he doesn't want to get into a wrestling match with Frank Yeager. Uh, he is good in scrambles, though. I give him credit for that. Uh, though he can be a little overconfident in his grappling. Like, I've seen him get taken down and just give up his back to get up. Uh, maybe a lost Aljamain Sterling might change that. Might, <laughs> um, And also his cardio. I mean, this guy, he's gone deep into fights. He's not slowed down. Um, I think about, like, the Rafael Sunsell fight. He went three rounds with a Sunsell, and he seemed like he was just starting to warm up. As we said, this is a sad fight. There's only one way, in my opinion, Frank Yeah could win. And, uh, well, obviously it's a land of lucky, huge punch, which is one way anybody can win. But, I mean, realistically, the only way I see Frank Yeager winning is that's to out-wrestle San Hagen for 15 minutes. And at this age, I don't think Frank Yeager is physically able to do that anymore. We haven't seen him physically out-wrestle anybody in a long time. I think this fight's going to look a lot like the Max Holloway fight, where... Uh, he struggles with the length of San Hagen. I think he's going to struggle with someone who can match his output, uh, someone who's a more technically sound striker. Um, Edgar is so tough that he'll make it to the distance, but it's going to be just him frustrating. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the last time we see Frank Edgar fight. So I'm going to say San Hagen clowns on him, and I think it's going to be a 30-26 scorecard, one of those kind of things. So give me San Hagen in a blowout. Excellent. I can't, I mean, I can't front on anything you're saying there. And no, this is not me like opening the gate for my upset special of the evening. I'm just kind of uh, agreeing with it as, as you've laid it out there. The crazy thing is Edgar's been around for so long and he's been a top level contender in top level weight classes for so long that it's almost, you can also almost use him as a measuring stick for how the sport has evolved. I mean, when you see him walk into the cage against Corey Sandhagen and stand face-to-face in the middle and Sandhagen looks twice his size, you're going to say, how was this man ever the lightweight champion of the best lightweight division, you know, the best uh, of the best promotion in the world at the time? And that's something we already said when he was squaring off against Max Holloway and Brian Ortega, and they looked, uh, you know, 
uh, two sizes bigger than him. Uh, it, it's ridiculous how how that's changed. I mean, I'm not saying he'd beat them or he'd be as strong, but Corey Sandhanger would would tower over Gray. Can I interrupt you for a sec? Of can course. I, I didn't mean to jump in, but imagine Frank Yaga standing next to Michael Chiesa when Michael Chiesa was a light heavyweight. <laughs> when Michael Chiesa was a light heavyweight, obviously I mean, a lightweight. A lightweight. He looks yeah. like a, he looks like a light heavyweight when he's a lightweight. Could you imagine? Could you imagine Frank Yeager and Michael Chiesa? Oh my God! All yeah. right, carry on. Sorry, and carry on. But, but Edgar's always known he was undersized. I mean, the guy wrestled at one thirty-three. Yeah. So, and it is against the conventional. No, I take that back. It's according to the conventional wisdom, but it's against my wisdom for a fighter in his thirties to drop in weight as a cure for his ills. Like I think, except for well, Frankie Edgar and Damian Maya. And like maybe one or two other examples, dropping in weight after, you know, about your 32nd birthday is not a recipe for success or longevity. It has been for him. And arguably it has been for him twice. It, he's not had a, a great run at uh, Bantamweight so far, but it's, I mean, it's not any worse than, than he was or would have been doing at, at Featherweight. But yeah, this is, this is where the road ends. Uh, Edgar has, like, like you say, legendary heart. And that's, it's not some intangible it is it is literally what won him the fight, uh, the fights against Gray Maynard because both both times it was a 10-7 first round at least one of the times and it was a 10-8 the other the other time like only that was only a 10-8 because Edgar came on at the end of the round and, and like landed some good punches he got completely racked twice and came back to to win those fights, uh, but. Though the spirit indeed is willing, the you know the body gives out sooner or later, and he's going to be in there. He's going to have a strength, speed, and cardio disadvantage against Sanhagen, who might even still be a year or two away from his true prime. And none of the avenues that have been shown to beat Sanhagen or even give him a hard time are things that I can picture 39-year-old Frankie Edgar doing. I mean, running right through him like Aljamain Sterling did is something I could have seen Edgar doing 10 years ago where you catch a kick, bail on the takedown and instead just hop onto his back and choke him out and go home in 90 seconds. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that Frankie Edgar did to people like on his way up the lightweight rankings, but that's not been Frankie Edgar's game for a long time. And I don't think he has the wherewithal to do it anymore. Uh, Rafael Asunsao and John Lineker both gave uh, him good fights even if they, they lost. But I, I don't even think that's there anymore. I think this is just going to look like Edgar gutting it out as he just gets taken to the woodshed. I think we're going to find out pretty early that he's not able to take Sandhagen down, or at least not able to take him down with the ease. And then it's just, it's going to be on. The route's going to be on. And as much as it bums me out to say it and picture it, Sanhagen has proven that he has three-round cardio and then some. I can't wait to see this guy in five-round fights. In his three-round fights, he's tended to be the guy pulling ahead towards the end. I think the Lineker fight is the one exception of a time where I saw him losing a third round. So give me Sanhagen by third-round finish, probably TKO on the ground, you know, or just squashing a desperation takedown and just pounding him out with hammer fist behind the ear or, or something like that. But Sanhagen by third-round finish, it'll be a bummer, but, you know, that's the circle of life. Yeah. Before we move to the main event, I just want to mention this and ask you this question. So we've had so many great moments, Frank Edgar, lightweight, featherweight. Could you imagine, though, if he actually fought in his 
is the natural weight class is rifle weight class and bantamweight all along. Could you imagine the the matchups we would have had with Dominic him versus Dominic Cruz, him versus Hedden Barrow, him versus Tita Dillashaw? Like, man, that'd be fantastic. Oh, yeah, I mean, even just featherweight the whole time. You know, I think he would have hit his ceiling because I mean, Aldo definitively beat him both times, and the first time was pretty close to their primes, but. You know, I we saw what he did yeah. to the Fabers and Mendezes of the world and um, Cub Swanson. You know, yeah, Aldo is the anti wrestler. Like he's yep. that's what he is. Now wrestlers not being Jose Aldo. Yep, that's, that's it. That brings us to the main event of UFC Fight Night One Eighty Four as Alistair Overeem and Alexander Volkov take the cage. Overeem. The 40-year-old Dutchman is 47 and 18 with one no contest. He is 12 and 7 since joining the UFC. Volkov, the 32-year-old, is 32 and 8 overall, 6 and 2 in the UFC. Currently, Volkov sits as a moderate favorite around minus 185, where Overeem is available around plus 160. Keith, I'm going to ask you for your pick, but before I do, I mentioned right off the top that uh, these are two of the more accomplished uh, heavyweights never to win a UFC title. Volkov has Bellator and M1 titles. Alistair, obviously, uh, Strikeforce, Dream, and then outside of MMA, he has won a K1 World Grand Prix. Oh, and he also won the the European Abu Dhabi trials one year. Uh Either of these guys would be a long shot to win a UFC title at this point, just because of some of the people they've lost to and how, and the fact that they're still in the way. But if I came back in my time machine and I said, hey, man, I just got back from the year 2023, and one of these guys won a UFC title, which one would you say it more likely is? Volkov. Excellent. All right. <laughs> I don't want to um, give too much away. <laughs> all right. Uh, but uh, with that, go ahead and uh, tell us how you see this one breaking down. Well, you know, I get to the breakdown in a second, but w- one thing, and we'll probably talk about this on the recap, is I feel like the winner is in such a tough predicament because, you know, you get a headlining fight between two ranked guys. You usually think that's going to get you high up in the title pitcher, but. You know, Stevie Miocic, who seems to defend his title once a year, um, he's facing Francis Nagano in end of March. Sounds like, you know, so that's another six weeks or so until that fight happens. And then, you know, figure a couple of months to turn around. But it sounds like John Jones is going to jump the line, which he probably should. If any fighter has ever deserved to change a weight class and get an immediate title shot, it's probably John Jones. And then... Curtis Blaze, who's a terrible stylistic matchup for both these guys, is probably the next one after that. So the winner of this one moves fourth in line for the title? Like, it's just a really tough situation. Um, um, that said, let's get to the accident that owes this one. Alice Overeem, uh, you know, definitely at the end of his career, he's really turned into a, he's a very measured and calculated fighter on the, on the feet. Um, he kind of thinks more defense than offensive now. 
uh, uses a high guard, kind of does a lot of shelling up and hiding behind his hands and his forearms, uh, kind of weather the storm and then pick his shots. Uh, he just touches with a jab. He throws, when he throws, you know, power shots, a lot of hooks. His looping overhand left is probably his best strike. Uh, he also has little step-in knees, which uh, is a thing we see. Uh, he He's a very good wrestler, though. He He doesn't get enough credit for how good his wrestling is. We talked about it in his last fight is to the point where because he's a, you know, former K1 kickboxing champion and we always think about a striker, but he's really turned more into a grappler. Um, he's got good ground and pound, good top control. Um, you know, think about the fight like against Walt Harris. We beat up Walt Harris on the ground. Uh, he beat up Augustus Sakai on the ground. And it's just Pavel- Pavlovich. Just Sergey Pavlovich. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. He ran right through Sergey Pavlovich. Yeah. Um, so that's something that's he never really gets credit for. He's a very well, he's one of the most well-rounded heavyweights of all time. <laughs> and it's funny because he always, always talking about his striking. Um, move over to, to Volkov. He's a very technically sound striker, very disciplined. He's accurate. Uh, like I was saying, in, a, in a, when we were previewing his fight against Harris, he's very loyal to a game plan. He knows what he needs to do to win. And he'll he won't vary from it. Uh, I, the perfect point of that is the Greg Hardy fight. He knew teep kick and jab, and I'm going to win. And he never put himself in the danger zone. He was okay with that. Uh, he, you know, we talked about guys on this card who has long range who doesn't really know how to use it. That's not the case of Volkov. He he keeping his range is a huge part of his game. Uh, works behind a jab, throws straight punches down the pipe. He throws those teep kicks, and, and if you get into the mid-range or come in with the knees to kind of either you know push you back or actually if you're a wrestler to try to scare off uh shots because uh it might become up he he did a number on walt harris with his with his knees i mean he, he finished it with with a body shot uh he uses movement well but he uses movement not to set things up but he want to just keep also to keep his range uh the going back to the greg hardy fight that's something he did in the greg hardy fight similar to Overeem, and I didn't mention this to Overeem, I was kind of saving at the same time. They both save their energy now as they get have gotten um, older by just touching. They don't unload with big shots anymore. Um, that's why Overeem is able to go deeper into fights recently. Uh, he also, he's, he's not a, he doesn't step in the danger zone to land that one big punch often. Because he's usually not the harder puncher in the matchup, and he and he understands that. It goes back to the game plan. He does have a solid chin, though. Like though he's not the hardest puncher, other than Derek Lewis, no one, at least in the UFC, has really hurt him. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the height. It's it's hard to really connect with him because you're kind of punching at a weird angle. Uh, he has good takedown defense, except in the fight against Curtis Blades. Curtis Blades really took him down at ease, but. I think that said more about Curtis Blades than it says about Volkov. As far as a prediction, I think this might be a really boring fight uh, based on both guys just liking the touch, um, both guys having fairly low output, especially Overeem. That said, I favor Volkov. I think Overeem has two ways to win this fight, and I don't think either is likely. The first one is obviously landing a one big punch as any heavyweight can and knocks out Volkov. The other one is he gets takedowns and win rounds and i think that's 
less likely. I think we'll see more likely that he's going to do that shell-up game where he kind of hides and, and tries to weather the storm. And I think Volkov will just touch, touch. He won't waste his energy like other guys, like Walt Harris did uh, against over him. I think he'll just touch him, win rounds, score points. And I think Volkov's going to win a decision. And I'm extremely confident in it. I haven't used my lock of the night. I'm locking it right now. I think Volkov wins, and I think he wins fairly easily. So not lock it in as my pick. Alexander Volkov wins. I I can't fault or contradict anything you, you threw out there. Uh, I, I will throw out uh, a bit of supporting data. You mentioned how Overeem has always kind of presented as a striker, and it's it belies how good his uh, grappling is. When he arrived in the UFC, he had more career submissions than knockouts. He has nine knockouts in the UFC, so he is now past that because that's what happens when you hang around with heavyweights and you're a very technically sound striker. You, you're going to pick up some knockouts. But yeah, when he when he came to the UFC after everything he had uh, accomplished before in Pride and Strike Force and Rings and uh, Dream, he had more career submissions than. Uh, knockouts and yeah. by the eyeball many, test sorry to interrupt you that and how many of those knockouts are being on top and grinded pounding somebody like walt harris for example he beat him up on the ground yeah and and yeah again pavlovich that's that's how he pavlovich, took him out one, yeah. um no i'm i'm totally with you on that and even by the eyeball test there was a time kind of before maybe like uriah faber came along i would have argued that Overeem had the best guillotine in the sport you know, like kind of his uh, last few years of light heavyweight and his first few years of heavyweight, like yeah. that was, you know, he 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 could fold you up in the clinch with those knees. Obviously, he could kickbox, but man, what a great guillotine and a fast guillotine for a guy that big. Cody um, McKenzie is mad somewhere. I guarantee that he is. <laughs> and Mike Swick, <laughs> and Mike Swick is mad somewhere. <laughs> Cody McKenzie's still mad because of that. Uh, that that half bottle of fake urine that they took from him and didn't give back. He was he was going to use the rest of that. Uh, I, I mean, I've I've seen Alistair Overeem and Alexander Volkov both lose in the last seconds of fights that they were winning handily. How differently would we be talking about Overeem right now? if he had hung on for another five seconds against Yarzino Rosenstrike. And he argued, and I kind of, I mean, I can see the point of the argument that they stopped it because his lip was so fucked up, not because he was out on his feet. I mean, there were four yeah. seconds left in the fight. Just ref looked at him and was like, oh, your your lip looks like you were mauled by a dog. We're calling this off. Because otherwise, I thought he won four out of five rounds. He <laughs> lost that round because he got rocked really bad, but otherwise he was handling Yarzino. Same thing with Volkov versus Lewis. Volkov was winning a terrible fight against Lewis because Lewis's fights are often terrible unless he knocks you out. And he waited a long time to do it then. Unfortunately, what it took to do that to Volkov is not something I think Overeem has in him anymore. He has it in his tool set. He doesn't have it in his disposition anymore. I mean, what whatever his failings uh, as a fighter, Lewis is, he knows He's realistic when he's losing a fight and he did throw caution to the wind and landed the one punch that would finish it for him. I, d I don't think that's Overeem's game at this point. It's never really been his game. Overeem has always been a little bit of a front runner. But yeah, I, I think you're right, man. I think this is going to be a fight where Volkov wins, oh, probably four or five rounds. And 
outlands Overeem by double, and there's just never a moment in the fight that we think there's going to be a finish. No, never is anybody really hurt. Never is anybody really in serious trouble. Overeem might try to take it down, but it'll be too late in the fight, and Volkov's takedown defense is frankly too good, and he won't want to put himself in a position where he's going to get elbowed in the side of the head or, you know, and knocked out. So he'll give up on it. But yeah, give me Volkov by decision. He survives, he advances, and he either takes another fight or he waits a year and a half. Yeah, so I want to jump in real quick. I know you got to do the recap uh, of our picks, but you you asked a question, um, and it was a good question, but I actually want to ask you like a follow-up. You said, what would we be thinking of Alistair Overeem if he was able to hold on to beat Jazina Rostrick? This might be the very end of Alistair Overeem. If he loses, this is the end of his chances as a title champion, you know, challenger. I don't think either one of us expect him to win the title. But, and you asked a question similar in the very beginning. What would we be thinking if Alistair Overeem was able to hold on and finish Stephen Miocic when he almost had him finished the first time? I mean, the, when they fought each other in the, in the title. I would be a huge feather in his cap. He would be, I think he'd be one of the top five or six heavyweights of all time instead of one of the top 12 or 15. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think Alice Overeem not winning a UFC title, it will be one of the true, um, I don't want to say tragedy because it's not a tragedy, but it's just one of those kind of sad, like it's, he's one mm-hmm. of the best. There's, there's been people who have held the UFC title that doesn't deserve it as much as Alistair Overeem. Like Shane Carwin was a, obviously a, had a period of time. Now he was only an interim, but like Shane Carwin is not a better heavyweight than Alistair Overeem is, and was not at the time. No, Rico Rodriguez is not a better heavyweight than yeah you know, Andre Lowski, who was a champion, is not a better heavyweight than Alistair Overeem. Mm-hmm. It's just he's he's going to be on that short list with Joseph Benavides and Dan Henderson, and, well, and I mean. Right off the bat, you can say he has beaten Frank Mir. He's beaten Arlovsky. He's beaten Verdum twice. He's beaten Brock Lesnar. I mean, he's he's at this point beat more uh, past or future UFC heavyweight champions than Fedor has. And that's kind of the argument that Fedor fans will always roll out to make the argument for how great he was in his prime. Yeah, and and he also didn't get to face it. Like, he didn't face Tim Sylvia. He would have beat Tim Sylvia. You know, he would have beat. I mean, he didn't ever get face Josh Barnett, but he might have beat Josh Barnett. Who knows? Yep. Nonetheless, uh, <laughs> still, I will just still, uh, uh, you know, a hell of a career as as it winds down. I will be interested to see what he decides to do if he loses, because yeah. obviously he he wants it. He knows what a jewel in the crown it would be. Like, right now, he's just got this incredible crown. I, I laid out all of his other accolades, sure. and there's just one empty spot right in the middle. Yeah. Even if, like, even if it was just the GSP or Bisping thing where, like, I won the middleweight title and held onto it for a second. Mm. It's just one of those ones you wish just yeah. the chips would fall. But I'm sure we'll talk about that on the recap because we're going down the recap road now. Yeah, we got we to gotta stop. So those those are it. All 13 picks for UFC Vegas 18. Real quick, let me just run them down. In our opener, which is unbelievably at featherweight, uh, Jerome Rivera versus Ode Osborne. Keith has Osborne by decision. Ben has Osborne by round two submission. 
Featherweights, Yusef Zalal versus Sung Woo Choi. Ben has Zalal by unanimous decision. Keith has Choi by decision. Both of us believe that will be the fight of the night, or at least we'll deserve it. Uh, Molly McCann versus Laura Procopio. Both of us have McCann by decision. Carl Rosa versus Jocelyn Edwards. Both of us have Edwards uh, by decision, and that is our upset special. We're not usually unanimous on that, but there you have it. Devontae Smith versus Justin James. Both of us have Smith by knockout. Ben in the first round. Keith in the second. Tamor Valiev versus Martin Day. Keith has Valiev by round one knockout. Ben has Valiev by round two submission. Mike Rodriguez versus Danilo Marquez. Both of us are saying Boston stand up. Rodriguez by round one knockout. Michael Johnson versus Clay Guida. Ben has Johnson by decision. Keith has Johnson by second round knockout. On the main card, Diego Fajera versus Benil Dariush. Both of us have Fajera by decision. Cody Stamen versus Askar Askar. Both of us have Stamen by decision. Alessandra Pantoja versus Manel Kopp. Keith has Pantoja by round one submission. Ben has Kopp by round one knockout. Corey Sanhagen versus Frankie Edgar. Keith has Sanhagen by decision. Ben has Sanhagen by round three knockout. And in the main event, Alexander Volkov versus Alistair Overeem. Both Keith and I believe Volkov will win by decision. That is it for UFC Vegas 18. Happens this Saturday night at the UFC Apex. Enjoy the fights. Check out the live recap more or less immediately afterwards on the Sherdog YouTube channel. Thanks for listening.